0: two years i'm wrapping up this series by talking about something i love with somebody i respect from los angeles california it's the final episode of stranger than christian all come to this the final episode of Stranger than Christian. My name is Christian Carey and thank you for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in since 2020 when I started this show. We were in the midst of a pandemic. We were in the midst of a seemingly global lockdown and I was starved for human contact and in that feeling I sensed an opportunity to become the broadcaster that I wanted to be on my own terms. And I set about making a show that I would want to listen to. And it was based around free-form conversation. No script, no agenda, no ambush. Just want to talk to people and find out how the rest of the world is living and offer some comfort, offer some relatability, some validation, and I got a lot of that in return as well. Uh, Over 80 episodes later, I've talked to people from dozens of different countries, from just about every state in America. I have talked to people from all walks of life. We've laughed and we've cried. As corny as that sounds, that's exactly what's happened. There have been some, some episodes where we're rolling with laughter. There were some episodes where I or my guests would just break down crying. And You know, you take those experiences and you look at them as a microcosm of the world. There are happy times, there are sad times, and I'm proud of this project as a document to this period of personal growth um, that I've made in myself. And, hmm, okay. This project for me symbolizes the beginning of what I consider to be the greatest creative renaissance in my life. Like, I am able to create again. I'm able to write things again. I'm able to record things again because I feel like I have the energy and I have the discipline and I have, and I have the, the you know the drive to make it happen. Um, and so this project will always be very special to me. I will keep this online for as long as I possibly can. It may be on streaming, it may be on the Internet Archive, but it will be somewhere. Um, there are no plans to take the episodes down right now, but this is the last one. And it's the last one because um, I received a pretty unique opportunity. I was brought on by the National Archives of Game Show History, which is part of the strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. I was brought on to do a podcast, produce and host a podcast, wherein I interview and talk to people who have been contestants on game shows. And so what this does for me is it enables me to do my show in more or less its current format, but every episode I get to talk about something that I love. You know, I've been a contestant on six-game shows, so there is a bit of commonality between me and all these people that I think I can speak on in a way that somebody else might not be able to. And so it's been immensely gratifying being able to talk to these people and produce this show. It hasn't premiered yet. The title is... Tell Us About Yourself, Conversations with Game Show Contestants. So that's what you'll be able to search for uh, hopefully soon. I will be in touch on Twitter and social media about the premiere of this show. And I really hope you enjoy it. I think you will. Um, Again, what I consider to be the success of this project is that it's the thing that I'm doing or the thing that I've been doing for two years with the flavor of the thing that I've been enjoying all my life. And so I feel like I have breathed new life into myself in terms of this type of broadcasting. Um, So, yeah, keep an eye out for it. Tell us about yourself. Conversations with game show contestants. Um, Yeah, you're going to like it. So to celebrate my transition into this project, today I'm talking to a man named Randy West. Randy West is a professional voiceover artist and game show announcer. Now, he's been in the—who's following me on Instagram? Leave me alone. Sorry, I forgot to put my phone on. Do not disturb. Anyway, Randy has been in the industry for decades, and he was a disc jockey for years and years. He was a contestant on a bunch of game shows, Press Your Luck, To Tell the Truth, many others. And you might know, And you might know his voice— Um, From his years on The Price is Right, he was the longtime announcer of Supermarket Sweep, which if that show was as much of a part of your childhood as it was mine, you will know his voice immediately. And it was just a pleasure to be able to talk to him. He wrote a book about the ins and outs of many aspects of the television industry in the years that he's worked, Uh, lots of stories that he's heard, lots of interesting anecdotes and cautionary tales, and he's going to talk about that a lot in this interview, and I'm proud to be able to have this conversation with him. Um, He represents a type of television that has made me who I am, and so to be able to have this conversation with him and to record it and to bring it to you um, is an honor and a privilege as it has been over these past two years, so... We're going to do it. It's going to be great. I will be back with that conversation with Randy West from Los Angeles, California, in just a minute. But first, take a listen to this. You're listening to Stranger Than Christian. For the last time, thank you so much for everything. Stay right there.
1: What happened the night Jay Leno was arrested by the LAPD on Hollywood Boulevard? TV Inside Out is the new book full of true stories of Hollywood double-dealing and broken promises. Blackmail schemes, suicides, and murder plots. You never knew how many of your favorite performers cracked under the pressure. What gorgeous actress did Johnny Carson pursue unsuccessfully for decades, finally telling her before his death, I'd still like to f*** your brains out? Why Bob Barker and Mark Summers went from valued friends to angry enemies overnight. How William Frawley and Vivian Vance continued to feud even years after I Love Lucy had long ago ended. Why TV's number one district attorney was busted by the cops. And how CBS knuckled under from pressure to reverse his firing. TV Inside Out goes behind our screens and behind the scenes. TV Inside Out is the first book to so fully reveal the drama behind TV's dramatic series. The misery at the happiest sitcoms. The private whispers in talk show dressing rooms. And the games people play behind the scenes at your favorite game shows. The troubled souls and the bold faced lies. More all true fully vetted direct from the sources stories than any other look behind the scenes ever. TV Inside Out guarantees you'll never Watch TV the same way again. Join with computer audio. There I am. There you are. There you are. Randy, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? I sure can. How are you today? I can be louder or softer. Let me know.
0: Uh, you sound uh, great. Let me just, t- yeah, no, you no, you sound fantastic. Right. Randy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm still coming off the excitement of seeing Wheel of Fortune live. One of the most exciting things I've seen in quite a while. And you and Mark and everybody just did a wonderful job.
1: Well, thank you. It's a, a format that's uh, hard to screw up if you play it the way it's been played on television because people just love it. And I'll tell you, Mark and I were talking backstage after the show at a couple of these uh, venues that we played. And it's kind of scary, you know, when you host or or announce or co host a a game show, normally you're looking for the Nonstop energy from an audience, like with prices right, there are people are screaming prices and carrying on through the whole thing. But at Wheel, there are moments where the audience is silent and it's a little unnerving because you think you're losing them for a moment. And what they're doing, of course, is trying to solve the freaking puzzle. Right. And right. Yeah. They're not yelling and screaming. They're looking at the letters and scratching their head. And you know they're there because the minute somebody calls a stupid letter like F and it's not in there, everybody who knows the puzzle goes, Oh, right. So and then you get that reaction
0: that you're looking for right
1: yeah and then they call the tea that everybody already in the audience figured out and the audience is on, on their feet almost screaming so it's kind of deceptive until you get in the groove because the audience isn't hooting and howling with every turn of events but that show as price is right uh, that has been successful on the road are so loved by the audience that it's really hard to uh, to screw it up so uh mark and todd newton and all uh, mark summers and David Ruprecht and, and uh, all these folks, uh, Jerry Springer, who have done the show, uh, these shows on the road uh, are treated really to a lot of love and respect that they haven't individually earned necessarily. It's the good vibrations uh, and, and the, you know, good feeling that people have about these shows that we get to escape. Sure. And, and, uh,
0: and, and that's what game shows are all about at, at the end of the day and, you know, hosting Wheel of Fortune. And I noticed that, from an audience point of view, hosting Wheel of Fortune is a much different challenge than hosting a show like Jeopardy or The Price is Right because, yes, they are, uh, a show like The Price is Right, there's constant audience interaction. There's always something to look at. It's, you know, as an audience member, I was very, like you said, fixated on the puzzle. And that was the first time I had ever watched Wheel of Fortune in that setting. I had never been part of the audience of Wheel of Fortune, you know, been in such a large group of people watching it. And yeah, it is a, it's a, it's an interesting challenge to feed off of that audience energy. Cause that's what a game show host sort of depends on is the reactions of people. And, you know, you want to know that everybody watching you is following along with you in the game. And I just immense respect to anyone who could host wheel of fortune really, really well.
1: Well, all these shows require a special talent, all different, you know, a Q and a like jeopardy, obviously has a whole different skill set all its own. Uh, Watching Alex, for example, you know, go through those, what is it, 60 some odd questions uh, or answers, I should say, you know, almost flawlessly, there were days where uh, he made no mistakes at all. I mean, he was used to be in there early in the morning and reviewing the material, but still to be rapidly firing this information at folks and never missing a word or a pronunciation. It was fantastic, yet, I necessarily wouldn't put Alex as host of let's say uh, the, the price is right because it's a different kind of skill set Alex is not as warm and loving and touchable I feel at least I wasn't uh it's a different style than well, uh, barker or, or drew for that matter
0: yeah very much so I would agree with that 100% and you know people like Alex Trebek are people that I Idolized when I was younger, growing up and watching game shows, and you know I used to idolize all these guys, but Alice Beck was way up there. I want you to tell me if you could, Randy, about the effect that Johnny Olson had on your career. And for people who who uh, who don't know, Johnny Olson, the longtime announcer of The Price is Right, the original announcer of the new Price is Right that we that's on the air now, the Honeymooners. What's my line? dozens of game shows in New York and California. Um, I know he is very important to you and your professional development. And I wonder if you could tell me uh, what his impact has been on you.
1: Well, as a kid in New York, I I fell in love with television as you did, as so many folks have. And the ability to go and watch television be made, created, uh, was a a thrill that only New Yorkers and L.A.ers, for the most part, part get to to enjoy so i used to cut classes and go down to Thirty rock and that was sort of like my disneyland in the days before intense security which we're in now uh you could just kind of pretty much walk in and wave like you knew where you were going or say hey my father's in a meeting at the 56th floor which was one of the executive floors and say uh, he told me i could just hang out while he's up in a meeting Oh, oh okay you know it was it was nothing to get in and once you were it was like being in disneyland it was fantastic so the first show i saw tape was a show called snap judgment uh that johnny announced and warmed up and uh, ed mcmahon was the host and uh, there was mrs miller in all her glory too uh I, i suddenly i was in television in this little world that you knew the players the people and and the sets and the shows but you never were actually physically in it And to be there and watch Johnny Olson work in New York audience was not to be believed. New Yorkers, you know, you're standing in line before you get into any television show. New Yorkers are not known for their patience. And by the time they sit down, especially if it's winter and they're carrying coats or have umbrellas, you know, uh, excuse me, you're sitting on my coat late. Oh, well, that's my side of the room. This is my armrest. You know, everybody's got their their New York attitude. And out comes this guy. (laughs) How's everybody doing today? This ball of energy comes running out, up and down the aisles, handing out dollar bills, smiling, kissing women on the cheek. The whole room in seconds turns 180. It's a whole different environment. This guy could light up a room like nobody's business. And I could tell you the things he did, but it somehow just doesn't do it justice. He could walk in a room and have everybody feeling like they were family and friends. And he used to say, there's cousin Bob over there. How you doing? Well, look at my sweetheart over here. How's everybody back home? You know, he would say these kind of homespun things because he was a Midwesterner. And even if you were never in the Midwest in your entire life, kind of took on that sensation of, you know, oh, we're all kinfolk here. So I used to go to these shows. I was mesmerized by him. And I wanted to sit where Johnny Olson sat because he was the guy that had all that energy. And I, of course, always in the back of my mind thought I might be a disc jockey someday. And I wanted to watch him do that announcing. So when po- people come into an audience, they all want to sit in the middle. The announcer's always at one edge of the stage or the other. And you could always get a front row seat right where Johnny's microphone stand was because nobody wants to be all the way at the edge of the room. And I would watch him. I-, I guess my tongue might've been hanging out of my mouth or I might've been drooling, but he knew that I was fascinated by what he did. He used to give me uh, old pieces of his copy, his scripts, and go home now and practice with this. And you know, he had no kids of his own. I was 14, 15, 16. And he took me uh, seriously as uh, thinking, you know, you could do this. You want to do this kind of work. You could do this, go home and practice, read advertisements in the life magazine, you know, and, and come back and bring me a tape of you do, do, doing this copy, you know, and I never knew if he listened to these tapes or not, but he was always very encouraging. And uh, the epiphany hit me the day uh, he was doing audience warm-up And he said, who wants to get me a cup of water? And a couple of people raised their hand. I did, I would do anything. I would shine his shoes, you know, get them water. It was no big deal. And uh, he called me down from the audience to the stage and uh, he would give me these directions. Now go make a left, go out those doors, go up the flight of stairs, think a right, then take a hard left, go in the elevator and you'll see a water fountain there. But don't get me that water, that water is no good. I want you to go back on the elevator, go up two more. Fl-. He would give me this convoluted bunch of directions that nobody could follow. And I would just walk off the stage holding his empty cup and go into the wings. I know I couldn't follow those directions. So uh, I stood there until he said, where's that kid with the water? And I came back on stage with an empty cup. And he said, don't trip over the cable. And as he said that I kind of made like I tripped and I handed him the cup and it was empty. He says, when you tripped over there, you spilled all the water. Look at this, the cup is empty. Go back to your seat. <laughs> and I would, hang, I would hang dog my face, you know, go, oh, shucks, kind of sure. look on my, and, and shuffle my way, a embarrassed and humiliated back to my seat. And the audience laughed. And suddenly something happened there. There was a, an electricity when a bunch of strangers approve of something you're doing. I was a class clown. This was the biggest classroom in the world. Uh, and to get a laugh was, was just thrilling. And he realized how much I love that. And he would call me down to do the same thing when I would visit You know, several weeks later, uh, a month later, he would see me over and over again. But every time the act would change, he would give me different directions. I was doing improv with this masterful performer and uh, trying to hold my own with him. And he knew he was, you know, challenging me. And when I got back to my seat and he was through with the show or whatever, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Hey, nice work kid. And we giggled together. And uh, that grew into a friendship. Long story short, was well, too late for that, but
0: No, I love it.
1: Yeah, we used to correspond. Uh, After he left New York in 1972, he came out. Mark Goodson wanted to do the new prices Right because it was loaded with advertising copy. The whole show is is reams of copy. And Goodson knew that uh, Johnny could make it fun and energetic and not sound like a giant commercial. Johnny didn't want to come to L.A. He'd been here previously in the 1940s in New York uh, and went back to New York, I should say. Penny didn't want to be here, his wife uh but he was lured away because goodson wanted him and that's when i saw him again in 72 is when he left i came out in 79 so there were seven years when i was still in new york and he was in la when i came to la i went down to television city he was doing as you mentioned the price is right and i figured i would reintroduce myself and he said hey randy how have you been he remembered oh, me. And, you how know,
0: wonderful you-
1: how crazy and you changed a lot from age 16 to 20 something but he remembered me now we're at a whole different level we're, we're going to occasional lunches and 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 he's given me tips on what it is why he does it how he does it never gave me a job but gave me all the tools about how to do an effective audience warm-up what's the intent what's the purpose how do you befriend strangers how do you get them to befriend each other and uh it was a million dollar education now i I'll give you two more pieces of this story that blow me away Even when I just tell it. Sure. Johnny died in, in 85, Johnny passed away and it was a sad day and 14 years go by and you forget all about, you know, relationship that you had with him in 1999. Uh, Penny Olson's nephew calls me on the phone and says, are you the Randy West that used to correspond with Johnny Olson? I'm like, Yeah, what could this be about? Well, I'm Penny Olson's nephew. They had no kids. We're closing out Penny and Johnny's home because she's going into a nursing home. And there are many boxes of things that he saved over the years, including letters from you. And that's how I got your name. And I'm like, he saved the letters I sent? Wow. Wow. I mean, I saved his, but I didn't expect he would, you know, spend more than ten seconds, you know, scanning one of mine. So anyway, apparently you guys were friends. Well, I, I, he is responsible for giving me everything I know about this career and 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 encouraging me. Well, he saved some things that are not appropriate for the Wisconsin Historical Society or. The uh, university where we were giving videotapes and kinescopes, but these personal items seemed like they would have a good home with you. And I was like, holy moly, I can't believe it. So I ended up with uh, the book that he started to write and, and uh, Emmy plaques and microphones and press clippings and all this stuff. And the kicker to this story is already a, a crazy a, a set of circumstances. But then, and this is 1999, when I get all this material. I'm sorry, uh, he died in 85. Yeah, 99, when I got all this material. And then in 2003, I get a, fall, a call from Roger Doftowitz at The Price is Right. Randy, Bob and I were listening to your tape, and I'm thinking, Bob, did I meet anyone named Bob at The Price is Right? Oh, geez, Barker, holy crap. <laughs> and, and, and Roger's three sentences further in his little discussion with me and I wasn't even paying attention, but I tuned back in when he said, man, we'd like you to do a week of shows. So now I'm standing at Johnny Olson's footsteps at the Price is Right, his signature show, if you will, best known of his work at his podium. And I'm wearing his CBS badge from the last year that he worked because it was among the things that he saved and I got. And when the staff at the Price is Right, when they saw me wearing his badge, I mean, where did you get that? I, the guy's been dead for 20 or oh, 18 years, I guess, at that point. And who, how did you know him? And I tell them the story and they're just blown away as anybody would be that this guy played such a recurring role in my life and, as a teenager, as a young adult, as a guy starting in the industry and now uh, working at The Price is Right already with a career that he inspired and that I uh, learned greatly from what. Uh, he had done before.
0: Amazing. You know what I love about that story, Randy? It starts Mm -hmm. with an adult identifying a kid's passion and taking it seriously. And when it comes to kids loving TV and loving game shows, I think it's very easy sometimes for adults to not take that seriously. And I know that when I was into what I was into when I was younger, I loved Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, and I just got Game Show Network. I was learning all these things. And it was very easy to laugh me off go, oh, you're going to be like the next week Martindale? And that would be the end of it. But to see that it's a viable path and that there's a there's a there's a legitimate passion there and to encourage that i think that's beautiful
1: it was such a gift because my parents thought I was out of my mind. What are you going to do for a living? You're going to talk on the radio. You're going to talk on the way. You get a real job, you know, go to med school, go to law school, you're to become an accountant. So there was no love at home. And that was some of the fascination I had with Johnny. He was like, you can do this. And I, I, I'm sure he saw no talent, but he certainly saw passion and to have encouraged me be the sole person, frankly, at that age who would encourage my pursuit. You're absolutely right. It was a tremendous gift. And every, Everybody, I think, who wants to get into this business probably faces the same thing. Oh, you're out of your mind. And the industry itself, as you know, is full of rejection. So even those who have support at home get a lot of no's on their way to getting a single yes. That's right. Uh, and you learn from yeah. each of them. Yeah. Yeah. Sure if, you, if you can hang on long enough. <laughs>
0: True. Exactly. Well, you know, getting into game shows is a great way to experience the world of broadcasting and you've done that several times and you were a contestant randy on shows that i grew up loving uh press your luck uh to tell the truth you were an imposter on to tell the truth you were on what's my line you were on face the music these are all shows that have incredible uh sentimental significance for me Mm. and you were there and i wonder if Mm -hmm. go ahead no no please after you
1: Well, the only reason I was there, well, you know, most people want to go because they want to win a car or a boat or a a Lee Press-On-Nails or something. I was only there because I just loved the business. It it plays right off of that passion. How can I get in this world? And the only access point uh, for a non-professional is as a contestant. And that was really my motivation for being on these shows. It was less about the prizes and so much more about being in the environment, in that world and, and watching it and being part of it. And that was uh, fascinating to me. And it turned out to be a way into the business unbeknownst to me, because when you win uh, if you're a successful contestant on a game show, many of them are called back for those producers to develop new shows. You know, you can invent checkers And it plays like a lousy game unless you have two people who understand the game and know how to play it and make it exciting. Uh, If you have idiots playing it, it just doesn't work. So so, uh, producers will call back contestants who are particularly charismatic or seem to know gameplay well to have them run through the new ideas to see whether they work or not. And Jay Wolpert was one of the producers who saw that in me and used me in that regard. And I would go back every week as he was putting changes in developing a a show called Faker's Fortune that never got onto the air to the best of my knowledge or might have in another form after it evolved. But, uh, you know, he said to me, Randy, when you said you wanted to pass your turn to the other player, what what, what were you thinking? I said, well, I was thinking I didn't have much of a chance under the circumstance and and I was able to explain my motivation as to why I was playing the way I was. And that was fascinating insight to somebody who's creating, you know, inventing a game. And he called me back next week and uh, we, we changed that thing where you pass or play, now it's gonna be this or that. Let's play the game and see how it works. And he was like confiding in me at a, at a level I'd, I'd never seen before. And this was true with some other producers who called me back, Bill Carruthers example. And you got to suddenly be in the game. and. Long story short, I keep saying that because I'm so long winded, but (laughs) I love it. it. (laughs) In one of these run throughs, somebody, it was Steven Radosh at Marty Pacetta production says, all right, let's run this like it's a real game instead of just like sitting and kicking it around. Let's put it on its feet. So the show opens with the announce and I say, can I read that? "Uh, Yeah, sure, okay. And uh, you know, you're in an office somewhere and I go, ladies and gentlemen, it's time to play whatever, whatever. And here's your host, Steve Radosh. And eventually I would just be the guy that did that that, that 10 seconds at the run-through and it gave me my jollies. And one time they said, hey, we're going to pilot with the show. Do you want to announce it? And that was the entry point. That was the moment I became not a contestant, but suddenly a working announcer and of course i only got that opportunity because i had been on the radio for years and years and years so there was some background it wasn't just you know somebody came out of the woodwork and said hey the pick this kid you know like i was discovered at schwab's pharmacy you know but sure uh, you put your work in yeah so that opportunity to suddenly announce a pilot bang that was the moment so it all those contested appearances that you were talking about That was a way to get in and it actually turned out to be a way in. And I'm sure if you ask a hundred people how they got into the business, no two would have the same story. And this is a most unique one as much as anyone else's would be.
0: I love it. I love any opportunity to make those dreams come true. You know, I I love hearing about it. I'm gonna talk about some of the nuts and bolts of the shows that you have been on. There's one question that I have and it has to do with you appearing on Hitman And then appearing on Mm -hmm. Press Relux. So both of these shows were hosted by somebody who I looked up to when I was very young. His name was Peter Tamarkin. Left us way too soon. Very talented host. And, you know, just for a bit of backstory here, I was on The Price is Right in 2007. It was three weeks before Mm -hmm. Bob Barker retired. About a year later, he wrote his autobiography, Priceless Memories, and I went to New York to the book signing. I was first in line for his show in 2007, and I was first in line for his show, or for his book signing, rather, in New York a year later. And he he didn't remember me, and I don't expect him to because he meets so many people, and he had been off TV for a year at that point. I wonder if Peter Tamarkin remembered you between Hitman and press your luck. And I wonder if there was any sort of dynamic there by which a host remembers a contestant on another show of his.
1: In this case, not at all. Not at all. Uh, Rod Roddy worked both shows, and Rod was a friend, and uh, he was surprised to see me on both occasions because we didn't talk about my showing up. But Peter did not recognize me, and and that was just fine with me.
0: Sure. And you look like you had the time of your life. I mean, that show is electrifying to watch. I can only imagine what it was like playing that game
1: yeah yeah it's well if you press your luck is the equivalent of you know crack cocaine as far as game shows go it's just (laughs) so mad it's so wild it's so crazy it's so over the top And, uh, you know, and I'll be honest with you, you know, I I, you juice it up a little bit because oh, I did at least because I know they're looking for somebody who's expressive in their emotions. So, you know, while I am excited, uh, I just give it a little more energy because that's what they're looking for. So there's a way to be a contestant without being phony, but just, you know, increasing, maximizing what you're actually feeling.
0: Oh sure and a lot of potential contestants don't realize that you don't have to be born a contestant you can you can juice it up a little bit and as a matter of fact it's encouraged and almost expected in a lot of you know for a lot of shows the price is right comes yeah. to mind something about that studio just turns everybody you know just turns everyone's everyone's volume up by ten you know it's just being in that environment is 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 is, is well, doing the warm-up.
1: The warm-up of that show is like you know you're being paid to do nothing because all you have to do is say hello and people are yelling and screaming and it's just unbelievable. Uh, That's right. Well, most, especially most with fun. a
0: voice like yours, I mean, you have one of the best come-on downs I think of all the non-regular uh-huh. Price Is Right announcers. I, I. I i'm not in a position very often to do this show and tell the person i'm talking to i've watched you for years and i have because your voice has echoed throughout my childhood on supermarket sweep on the price is right on trivial pursuit on the family yeah. channel i used to watch that i watched it every day it was wow. i was so fascinated by that show wow
1: i'm, I'm very appreciative uh uh, and as much as joy as i might have brought you through the tv believe me the joy was all mine
0: well i, I appreciate hearing that thank you very much for everything um, let's talk for a second about "To Tell the Truth." Now, mm-hmm. it's easy to talk about being a central character on "To Tell the Truth," the, the subject of the segment. But there's a lot of preparation that goes into being one of the imposters. And I'll just quickly explain for anyone who doesn't, you know, who doesn't know the show. "To Tell the Truth" essentially it's three people. One of them has a fascinating personal story. The other two are trained to pretend to be that person, and they have to face a quick cross examination by some celebrities, and then they vote on who who they think is the real person. There's a lot of prep that goes into the to, into that imposter role. And I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit.
1: Well most of it is uh, a talent that's spotted by the contestant coordinators or the segment producers—you're uh, not called out of the yellow pages to be an imposter. It's somebody that they know could probably hold their own. That's glib and and outspoken and expressive, and you know could sell. Uh, what's the expression? Sell ice to Eskimos. You know somebody sure. who's uh, you know persuasive and 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 thinks on their feet. So I mean, half of the battle is that. And I went in there. All you get—it it seems it would appear that there's a lot of study and a lot of thought involved. All you really get is two paragraphs, a half a page about who the guy is, what he does. And then you get the chance to sit and talk with him for, you know, a couple of hours while the show is taping other episodes or, you know, while you're doing makeup and stuff, you can talk to the guy. But I kept trying to zero in on the specifics and the segment producer said, no, 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 no. If you try to remember everything you're asking this guy, you're gonna draw a blank because you're not sure what he said. I don't remember exactly. And you're gonna sit there and give yourself away as somebody who is not certain of the answers. The secret is get the idea of course of what it is he does and then envision it yourself. I was playing the part of a guy, Rick London, who gives tours on a bus in Washington, D.C., of all the the places where there have been scandals, okay? So I could try to remember uh, which scandal was in which building and uh, all these details and what president was wrapped up in in Watergate, which we all know was Nixon, but there were other stories like that that I don't know the details of. And if I tried to remember it, I would falter. So the answer was, it, make it up as you go along. It's a, It shouldn't be called to tell the truth. It should be called to tell the BS. I mean, right. it's just <laughs> go with the idea that that you perceive. So he gives tours. I didn't know that he has actors on the tour who act out the part of Fawn Hall or who, these different personalities who are in the News at that time in Washington, DC. I didn't know that. It only came clear when one of the celebrities asked him about what happens on the bus. He brought out that information. I didn't have that and I didn't use that. And I just explained my own envisionment of, well, we got off the bus at the fountain where, where uh, this person had that encounter and we all talked about it and laughed and then we got back on the bus. I'm just making stuff up as I go along. And while you could spend days trying to know everything this guy knows about his business or his unique experience, uh, it was much more effective to know, hey, this guy does this and how do I envision how that might be? And then I look certain and secure in my answers.
0: Well, it's almost a life lesson, right? The more confident you appear, the more confident you'll be. It's, it's you know, f- fake yeah. it until you make it.
1: There you go. That's exactly it precisely and i'll tell you what it came down to uh when it came to voting we stumped the panel i'm happy to say i think i drew two or three of the four votes and i don't recall uh it doesn't much matter but we stumped the panel which was the 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 idea behind the whole show and three of these folks were trying to take apart what was said and which seemed to be the most logical and of course the grand dame of the show kitty carlisle who'd done the show for six or I think six uh, decades in a row. Uh, They flew her in for this 1990s version from New York. And she relied on something I didn't even realize, which was when all the BS is said and done, when they pan the three contestants, is it number one, number two, or number three? She's got five seconds there where she knows the camera's not on her. And she pulls out a pair of, she calls opera glasses i'll call them binoculars and she just <laughs> stares at you and if you're smiling and making eye contact you're not a bser people who are lying tend not to look and give eye contact yeah. so she just that's her whole secret during that five second span of time where she knows she's not on camera, she just stares you down. I was looking at her and smiling just because I like her. And she's sure, she's, yeah. And I would look at her all day, every day, and just smile at her because she's so wonderful. No, but and she, she identified it as weakness, and <laughs> yeah. And I, I, unbeknownst to me, that's the whole secret of how she played the game. And uh, I, of course, drew her vote at the end they used to do in the old uh, what's my line? I think in the syndicated version, and to tell the truth, early. Earlier, the, the mill around, which is at the end, while the rolling credits, everybody's out on stage and making small talk with each other—the the celebs, the imposters, and the central figures. She came right up to me. She said, "You fooled me more completely than I can remember anyone fooling me before." Oh, was how just wonderful! A, I was just aghast looking at her. She says, "You lie with impunity," <laughs> and I said, "Well, I think, <laughs> I think that's a compliment. <laughs> Thank you very much."
0: <laughs> and that game, it absolutely is for sure. You know, Randy, for somebody in a position like yours who is privy to a lot of the backstage dealings and gossip and hearsay and fun stories, I, I always thought it would be great if there was a book of some of those inside stories because I love old broadcasting stories. And if there was just mm-hmm. like a compendium of things that I could read about what's happened backstage at some of my, like, my favorite game shows, uh, I, I, would, I, would read it, I would read it cover to cover. Now, you've written one of those.
1: Yeah, uh, the, the stories that I've heard from, I, I, I hate to say, it, but it's, it's like 45 years, God, in the business, you're on sets from the prices right down to the lowliest pilot that never sees the air, and everything in between, and you're working with celebrities uh, of all stripes, uh, and you hear things and you see things and uh, some of it is fascinating and of course a lot of it is is uh, confidential in nature and a lot of it has just never been told because uh, it seems like it uh, most people are, aren't even interested but there's a loyal bunch of tv fans who love what they've seen on the screen and 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 can't wait to learn more about it so uh, i've written this book uh, over the past I got six years that I've been actually working on it but doing the research for for 40 years, uh, making mental notes and, and physical notes about wow I never knew that and whoa geez you used to work with so and so and he what I mean all the things that you hear and make small talk about. Uh, is beautiful information that's gonna die with me or some all the people who are giving it to me, unless somebody writes it down. And it's the kind of book that I would have given anything to read because it is a beautiful insight into what goes on backstage, who these people are when the cameras and lights are off. And uh, some of them are very different. You mentioned Peter Tamarkin before, Peter on air and off air with Jekyll and Hyde, two completely different people. And none of this is meant to be criticism, it's more about insight into the human condition. How is it that people who have success, great money, great fame, are still miserable? I always thought if I had, you know, boatloads of money and everybody knew my name, that's all there would be to life, it would be a skate. But not the case. For some people, the richer they get and the more famous they get, the more miserable they are. And that study of the human condition fascinated me. So take the backstage information and that insight into how people tick. And that was the, the, the genesis for this book, which is TV inside out flukes, flakes, feuds, and felonies. And it came out just a couple months ago. And I'm already on my third order from the printer. It just is selling like crazy which is so uh, rewarding to me. And I don't mean financially, it just means that so many people are interested in the stuff that I've been interested in. And apparently you are a Christian over all these years.
0: Oh, very much. So congratulations on that success, by the way, I'm very, very, very happy to hear that because it Thank is you. a fascinating book. These stories are so interesting. And you mentioned the idea of the person on TV being much different off air. Than they are on the air. And when it comes to game shows, I think that's such a fascinating dichotomy because you get these people who are paid to Monday through Friday be on your TV, smile at you, give you money, and, and just be the essence of what we know game shows to be. And the fact that they can be so different offstage, it's, it's almost humanizing in a way. I had yeah. the chance to read Jim Perry's book. Jim Perry, the host of Car Shark, Sail the Century, and so on. He wrote a self-help book in the early 90s, and he talked about some of his struggles with you know, lack of self-love and mm-hmm. lack of self-respect and being afraid that every job was his last. And you look at a person like Jim Perry, who was the epitome of confidence on television, and the idea that he can be so not that off-camera was it just, it just, it, it gives his character this whole new dimension. And that's what I love about, about the stories in your book.
1: Well, it's, it's, uh, thank you. Uh, it's a, a truth and it's seemingly ironic that people who are insecure put themselves in the position that is most uncomfortable for them. If you ask most actors and performers, most of them, uh, you know, are, uh, are insecure. They're uncertain and the business is so uncertain. You think, why would anybody themselves through this the rigors of rejection and and competition on the level of show business yet it's the people who are insecure who are looking to find that missing part of them that put themselves in that place it's so strange that the most insecure people go to the light so to speak and and come under the microscope at their own will uh, and it's particularly confusing or frustrating or strange, however you look at it from which side you are, with game show hosts, because we all know actors are acting. They're playing the role of whomever it is in a movie. And while some actors always brought a portion of their personality or their perceived personal uh, style to their roles, something like Jimmy Cagney and and you know actors of years past, and, and some contemporary as well, bring a big part of themselves, But they're acting in a role where game show hosts, their role is to be who they are. They're not somebody else. They are you. It's Bob Barker playing the role of Bob Barker. It's Peter Tamarkin playing the role of Peter Tamarkin. Yet it is (laughs) truly a role. It's a part, it's a side of them, it's an aspect of their personality, but it's not the largest part of their personality. With Mm -hmm. some, it is. Now, Peter Marshall is on the air, off the air, the same genial, kind, funny, generous, just an adorable man, uh, on air and off. But some of these folks, it's an extreme. And to look at the two aspects of the same person, it's it's uh, it's like the Patty Duke show—identical <laughs> cousins who are completely different, so to speak. Right,
0: right. And you know, the I think one of the best examples of that venturing outside of game shows for just a second is Johnny Carson, mm-hmm. who was, you know, the king of late night. But to yep. hear how he was off camera, he was very shy and very quiet and maybe not the one to, you know, light up the room and be the life of the party. And again, just that that duality is, is just so fascinating to me. And I think, you know, as somebody growing up watching this kind of stuff and, you know, again, idolizing these people and therefore thinking that that's how they are all the time, it was mm-hmm. a great realization for me to make, <laughs> you know, getting old that nobody can be that way 24 hours a day. And I think I appreciate them more for that
1: yeah because you recognize that it is a performance and uh, they're able to do it so well so seamlessly on the air that it's quite amazing johnny i mean if you read tv inside out you know that he was his second marriage broke up because his wife wanted to be at all the parties and it was the last place he wanted to be and right. he was so distant and so shy and, and insecure and uncertain and and a loner that uh at nbc in burbank i would see him walking from his office to the dressing room to his little apartment that he had in the basement and then to the set he was always a- accompanied by a security guard now there's nobody who's going to attack johnny carson they're already on the lot they've already cleared security they're all wearing a badge nobody's going to attack johnny carson and stairwell but he just had somebody with him just to keep people at arm's length you know it's hard to say hey johnny when you know there's an armed guard walking with him it's just kind of put put that distance between them and peter lasalli who uh talks about Johnny at great length in, uh, in several forms, uh, talks about Johnny bringing his own lunch to work in a brown paper bag every day, just so he wouldn't have to go to the commissary or eat with other folks. He would sit in his little private uh, apartment and eat out of a brown paper bag. And, and that was how he was happiest.
0: Well, I think, you know, when you're so well-loved, whether you're talking about Johnny Carson or talking about uh, a game show host like Bob Barker or Alex Trebek, You know, if you put yourself out there, people will take a piece of you because when you are that well loved on television, people feel entitled to your presence, especially when you're somebody like Bob Barker or Alex Trebek or Pat Sajak or Steve Harvey, who's on your TV five days a week. They're, you know, almost part of your family
1: very true and steve is another great example well he's so accessible and 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 involved and and fun loving and all that while the tape is rolling between episodes you need to know that steve harvey sits in a chair by himself and uh, is very happy if you don't come up and say hello to him uh he likes to have his cigar and just sit there and recharge his batteries and regroup uh, the, the most people would run up to Steve Harvey or any of the folks who were talking, oh, I love you, and think that they would be happy to receive that uh, praise. Oh, my goodness, he'd love to know that my aunt thinks he's the favorite person on all of television. No, the answer is no.
0: Yeah, he's not always in the mood to hear that. <laughs> yeah,
1: and most times just not, because what they're giving on uh, on camera is their reservoir, if you will, of charm and energy and likability. And the last thing you want to do is is have to do that when the light is off, when when you're on your own time.
0: Absolutely. And I'm sure you feel the same way sometimes, too. It takes a lot of energy to not only announce a show like you did with Supermarket Sweep and The Price is Right and so on, but to do what you're doing now with Wheel of Fortune Live, getting up there and being being their Johnny Olsen, being that warm-up person to get up there and meet all those people and shake so many hands and throw a joke here and there, it takes a lot of energy to keep that up.
1: Well, most of that energy I steal from the audience. I'm taking their energy and it pumps me up, but there does come a point uh, where it's just like, I just want to get these shoes off and sit the hell down uh, and just take a breath. And it's no disrespect to anybody. uh, And I would never do that. I've never walked away from somebody who wanted to say hello or get an autograph or, or whatever. And Johnny Olson taught me that. Johnny said, you are their ambassador to show business stay in that studio and be accessible until the last person walks out of the audience and he did that he would stay and sign autographs and tell stories and listen to how my aunt thinks that your show was the best blah 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 and that's i don't mean to blah blah meaning it's meaningless it's just it gets redundant and repetitive and i would watch johnny do that for it seemed like hours but you know 20 minutes 25 minutes after each audience was leaving the studio and I vowed that I would try to do that as well. And fact of the matter is I just can't, I couldn't at Price is Right especially because there's so much love for that show. And everybody wanted to talk about Rod Roddy who was ill at the time and wanted to talk about Johnny Olson, wanted to talk about anything and everything because that show has been so important to them. I was, as the announcer, their ambassador to show business in Johnny's words. I respect that, I love that. I, uh, it's an honored position truly, period, new paragraph, it can be tiring if you've just spent the day on your feet.
0: Sure. Oh, yeah, because you're a human being. Now, I'm not, I (laughs) promise I'm not going to get all soggy about this, right? But, and this is as much for you as it is for everybody listening, I met you at Wheel of Fortune in Maryland at the live show, and you Mm -hmm. were exactly that. You, I was so uh, amazed to have your ear, to tell stories with you, to have you talk to me and give me the time of day. It made me feel so special. And my interaction with you is one of those enduring memories that I have of that event. It just it was just it just made me feel, so wonderful, and if it's any consolation to you, I know you get tired at the end of these things, like you said. If it's any consolation to you, you absolutely carry that tradition on. At least in my interaction, um, well, I'll take question. I,
1: you, you were me. You were me, and I don't consider myself Johnny Olson, but uh, in any in any stretch of the thought, but. Uh, you know, I was the announcer on the show that you liked and and you wanted to, because you have that passion, be part of it or know more about it or or just be into it in some different deeper level. And I that was me. That was me. I respect that. I honor that. And I know what it, what it meant for me to Johnny to put his hand on my shoulder and, and, and give me the time of day. I would never walk away from somebody who was there. And when somebody who has the passion that I can relate to and identify with, which, you know, you're me, uh, I would never walk or disrespect that. That's an honored position.
0: Well, it was, it was so appreciated, and I, I thank you so much. Before we go, a couple things I want to mention one more time. First of all, you wrote a book about John Nielsen called The Voice in Time. I read it cover to cover. It is a fascinating book, highly recommended, and TV Inside Out. I want to get this right. Flukes, Flakes, Feuds, and Felonies, the Backstage mm-hmm. Blunders, Bloopers, and Blasphemy of Celebrities in Search of Success.
1: Ha! <sighs> well done. <laughs> thank you.
0: Please, yeah, it's, it's, it is— Two wonderful books written by a fantastic announcer. Um, The last question I have for you, if I could ask you, Randy. Sure. What game show hides $5,000 and then helps you find it?
1: Supermarket Sweep.
0: Oh, my God, my (laughs) heart.
1: (laughs) All right. Now, I'll give you you a moment here. This show was... just, well, for different reasons, a favorite, because that three-minute play-by-play or three and a half minute of running through the market, that was just a thrill to to announce because it can't be fully scripted. It's it's, it's playing on a television, and I'm describing what I'm seeing, working from a fact sheet, a, a script, if you will. But as you're reading it, the timing doesn't match the writer's timing. So it was a great deal of ad-libbing, of, of, of throwing in phrases and ideas and energy that I don't know where it comes from in some cases, you just kind of spit out a word and it works. So working that show was a puzzle. Can I do the play-by-play of this three minutes without a stop, without a hiccup, without a fumble in, in uh, delivery of the, of the language? And that was such a challenge and such a joy. Betty bounces a bevy of butterball birds into her basket. Look, she's heading for the back of the market. Now, where's she go? Oh, it's the giant wedges of cheese. Will she get a limit of five, two, three, four? Of course, all five. But now, look, here comes team two into the market. They've got their own strategy going down the center aisle for the health and beauty And
0: why age. are they doing that? Just go for the turkeys.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and those farmer johns. Don't waste your time Cole on the Rapam. green beans. They're
0: not worth anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's not how you're supposed to make the sandwich. (laughs) Oh, how wonderful. How wonderful. Well, I'm telling you, you've brought me so many good memories. And uh, even just talking to you now about this show, that was my childhood. 5 p.m. every day. It was the smell of chicken parmesan or beef stew or whatever my mom was making and the sound of your voice on Supermarket Sweep. That right there was my childhood. So I just... I'm I'm grateful that you talked to me today, and I'm grateful that you've been talking to me really for years and years and years. I really really appreciate it, Randy.
1: My my pleasure. I'm going to call David Ruprecht right now and, and tell him what you said because oh uh, please do. He, he he also takes great pride in, in that show and and the, and the love that it engendered. So thank I, you,
0: Christian. Oh, that is my pleasure. God bless you. Good luck with the book. Continued success and uh, continued success with the State show as well. And travel safely. Thank you, Christian. You have a great day. Oh, You as well. Thank you. Stranger Than Christian is edited, hosted, and produced by me, Christian Carrion, from my studio in beautiful downtown Lancaster City, Pennsylvania. New episodes are released every Saturday morning on all major streaming services and at strangerthanchristian.com. For more information, email me at strangerthanchristian at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at strangerthanc. Until next week, thank you for tuning in to stranger than Christian good night
1: how Johnny Carson's profound racism broke up his family TV inside out is the new book full of true stories of Hollywood double dealing and broken promises blackmail schemes suicides and murder plots you never knew how many of your favorite performers cracked under the pressure Why David Letterman's trusted cue card handler was suddenly and permanently escorted off the premises. What game show host said you to the staff, the crew and the audience, as he walked away from his final unfinished episode. Why Danny Thomas's co-star ran from her gig as his wife despite back-to-back Emmy nominations. How guns, drugs, sexual inappropriateness and outrageous demands hastened the end of Red Fox's top-rated reign as Fred Sanford. TV Inside Out goes behind our screens and behind the scenes. TV Inside Out is the first book to so fully reveal the drama behind TV's dramatic series. The Misery at the Happiest Sitcoms, The Private Whispers in talk show dressing rooms, and the games people play behind the scenes at your favorite game shows. The Troubled Souls and the Bold-Faced Lies. More all-true, fully vetted, direct from the source's stories than any other look behind the scenes ever. TV Inside Out guarantees you'll never watch TV the same way again. So that's it guys. I just want to jump in really quickly
0: uh, and say that I am very appreciative of everyone who has downloaded and listened to all these episodes and shared them and been patient with me while I tried social media. I tried Instagram. I tried Patreon. Um, I, at the end of the day am very, very grateful to have had the opportunity to bring you this program. I started two years ago with the goal of becoming the broadcaster that I wanted to be. And I can say, um, (laughs) <laughs> and I could say that um, that two years later is mission accomplished so I really feel like um, I did something kind of cool and that doesn't happen every day so I'm going to take that feeling and ride with it for as long as I can and I hope that you join me at my next gig I think you're really going to enjoy it thanks everyone good night